Let's get into Luke chapter 15. Tonight, we are covering um, the most famous parable in all of history. It's the most documented, it's the most noted, it's the most sung about, it's the most painted, it's literally the most recorded parable in all of history, in all of the Gospels. Tonight, we are looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm going to guess that most of you are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. But if you're not, let me just set up for you what's going on in this passage. So go ahead and open your Bibles, Luke 15, so you can sort of see the chapter layout here. Jesus is in the midst of a conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are complaining that Jesus is not only surrounding himself with sinners, but he's welcoming them. He's welcoming sinners, sinners like the tax collectors who, if you didn't know, tax collectors were considered to be blood traders of the Jewish people. They were uh, Jewish people who were taxing their own people and they were doing it at their own personal gain because tax collectors stood to make money off the taxes that they collected. So tax collectors like the worst of the worst for the Jewish people. And and Jesus is welcoming these people in. So the the scribes and the Pharisees, they're complaining about it. And Jesus spends all of chapter 15, if you're looking at it here, he spends all of chapter 15 confronting them and defending his welcoming of the sinners. And he does it through three parables, which if you don't know a parable, it's a story. It's a story meant to convey a message. And so What he does is he goes through these three parables. You can sort of see it there, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son, each one building on top of the other. And the climax of the story is this most famous parable that we see. And as we head into it, I want to set up the characters for you, all right? There's three main characters that happen in this story. And the first and most important is the father. The father represents God. We've been talking uh, about sin uh, a lot the past couple of weeks, right? And, we, and we've, I've, I've had several conversations with you like, damn, that was a really heavy message. And then last Thursday, I was like, man, that was also a really heavy message. Like we've been talking about sin a lot. We've been talking about repentance. We've been talking about salvation. It's been pretty heavy hitting stuff, right? Hell, damnation, security of salvation, like all important things, but all heavy things. But tonight, we're going to move past just focusing on the act of repentance itself. And we're going to spend some time talking about how God both views and treats those who are repentant. How God views them and how God treats them. And we're going to see that through the father because the father represents God. The second one is the prodigal son. And the prodigal son in this story represents the sinners and the tax collectors. The prodigal son represents the people whom Jesus is welcoming in and who he's inviting and who he's dining with. And we're also going to see that the prodigal son, that's who we want to be. Like out of the two sons in the story, we're going to strive to be the prodigal son, not that we want to run and, and spend all of our lives in, in what he does, but by the end of the story, that's who we want to be and who Jesus calls us to be if we're sincere Christians. And, and lastly, we have the, the third character, the older son, and the older son represents the self-righteous Pharisees. 
That is, the older son represents the scribes and Pharisees that have been complaining and grumbling against Christ and eventually begin plotting on how to murder him. And and I'll tell you, uh, that's who we don't want to be, right? That's who we don't want to be. We don't want to be the ones who boast in their works and become entitled and we become bitter towards the grace and mercy of God. So there are the three characters in this parable. Now let's actually get into the parable now that it's set up and, and look at it. We're going to take it a few verses at a time tonight. Just read a chunk of it, and then here's what we're going to do. We're going to see five truths, five truths that can be learned from this parable. It's not all the truths, but it's the five that stand out right on top. And let's go ahead and see the first one. Luke 15, get your eyes on it. Luke 15, verse 11 says, and he said, so Jesus is telling the story, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So I told you five truths. Here's the first truth that we see tonight, and that is God is gracious. God is gracious. Now, the definition of grace, the definition of grace is to be given something that you don't deserve. That's why we call God's salvation grace, because it's something we don't deserve that we've been given. And when we say that God is gracious, we are saying he's full of grace. That is, he is full of the quality of giving good things to people who don't deserve it. And we're going to see this later on in verse 22 as well, that he's gracious after the son has repented. But already we can see here in verse 12, this act that accents the willingness of the father to love and give good things even when we don't deserve it. And what we just read is that is the son right here, this prodigal son, he really He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve what the father did because if you look back there at verse 12, he says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So what what he's actually saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I want you dead and I want your inheritance money. You are as good as dead to me. I'd rather you give me the things that you've been building for your whole life as my inheritance. Give me your property, give me your money. I'll just cash that out. Now, that's what he's asking for when he says that I want the share of property that is coming to me. He says, I want my inheritance now. Now, I know most of you are uh, too young to be worried about what someone would be inheriting if you die. But if I think it's pretty easy for you to imagine the um, type of relationship you might have with your parents if you were to walk up to them and say, hey, can you just die so I can have your money? Or the house, like we, we, I mean, if, if you were just done, we could divide the house right now, me and my siblings and sell it. And I could, I could bank some cash right now. You can only imagine the type of relationship and the offense that maybe a parent might have at that. And so God, the father, and, and in this story, the father of the, of the prodigal son, he, he would have had every single right to be upset. Who wouldn't be upset if one of your children came and said that to you? God the Father could be like that, but he wasn't. Instead, he does what we absolutely would not expect. He gives his son his inheritance. Like it says there right at the end of verse 12, and he divided his property between them. So yes, like what I'm saying is God is gracious. He's gracious because even when his child wishes him dead and treasures only what he can get from God, rather than treasuring God himself, just like the father gave to the son 
what the son wanted from the father, not the father himself. Like that's God and God chooses to give good things anyways because that is who God is. So what we see here is that even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of us not knowing God and being an enemy of God, even in the midst of that, God has still been gracious to mankind. God is still a gracious God. We're like we live and we breathe his grace on a daily basis. This is Matthew 5.45. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, he says, for God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What that says is that God is gracious and he gives daily grace as part of his very nature. And both the sinner and the repentant and the righteous, they all get to receive from it. They all get to experience God's graciousness, even if they don't acknowledge it themselves. And we're going to see more of that in just a minute. But like this is the foundation of what we need to understand about God is that he is who he is, despite what we think and how we act and how we feel. God is God and God is gracious. So that's the first truth that we see. Look back at the text. This is verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So second thing we learn from the prodigal son is that sin is devastating. God is gracious and sin is devastating. And I say this because the prodigal son, what he did, it was sinful. It was idolatrous in, in so many ways, like choosing to love the things of the world over loving the father, like choosing to love money over what was right and what was holy. Like what the son did, it also lacked wisdom. It was foolish. And it says that he squandered his property, like, like his inheritance. He took everything. He asked for the father to pretty much be dead, took the money, ran with it and spoiled it all, ruined it all in reckless living, it says. And on top of that, we find out in verse 30 that the son actually spent a chunk of his inheritance on, on literal prostitutes, right? Like that's sexual morality. Like you can't deny there is sin upon sin going on here. And that's the lifestyle that he's saying. So all that to say the prodigal son was living a sinful life. He's taking what came from the goodness of his father and use, using it to drive himself away from the father. And what we see is we're no different than that today taking things that could be used for godliness and turning them to sinfulness. Like none of us are exempt from that. Like let's just, quick example. We just prayed for an unreached people group of the day, right? Like that's an app on the phone. Let's talk about cell phones and the internet for a minute. Like how amazing is it that we can take these devices and we could, if we so desired, communicate the gospel to someone that lives thousands and thousands of miles away whether it's through a phone call or an email or Snapchat or whatever, like we have the ability to communicate the gospel further than we've ever been able to. We have the ability to store the entirety of God's word on a device that fits in my pocket. 
Like they used to carry scrolls around in carts that were God's word, and yet we can fit it on this, and we can bring it up at any point. Like we have the ability to stream the gathering of God's people to a place in which people that have to miss out because of illness, they get to partake in it. They get to see it. They get to be with the body they normally get to be with on Sundays. Like we have all these amazing abilities. Like let's not be foolish. Let's understand that this can be and is an amazing gift from God. Like what a great technology we can use to expand his kingdom. But let's also admit that this is one of the largest causes of our sinfulness, our sinful desires, like the same device that we use for spiritual good. It's the same device we look at porn on. Same device that we text gossip and slander on. It's the same device we use to fuel idols like lack of contentment or comparison or always needing the best thing. Like taking what could be used for good and comes from the one who gives good and using it for evil purposes. Like we do that and that's what the son is doing here. And what do we learn from it? We learn that it's devastating, that sin is devastating to life and soul, that, that like the sin that he right here loves so much, it devastates his own life. It says in verse 13 that he squandered, uh, squandered all he had and in verse 14, because of his squandering, he was unprepared for the life that was given to him. He was unprepared for the drought that came. And so he had to try to work his way back in his own strength. But even that wasn't good enough, right? He gets hired uh, at this field and he's working this field. And even that's not good enough to bring him back from his sinfulness because eventually he gets to a point that even the pig slop looks delicious. He gets to the point where dumpster diving would be a five course meal. And yet he couldn't even have that. Sin had devastated his life so much that he couldn't even receive that. We don't know if it's because the people around him disdained him for his sinfulness and they didn't trust him. We don't know if it's just because he literally didn't have enough money even after being paid because of his debts. We have no idea. But what we do know is that sinfulness devastated his life. And if left unrepentant, sin can devastate ours as well, not only physically, but spiritually, even leading to death. And I don't want to just draw this from a story. I want to show you as well. This is Romans 6, 23. It's on the screen. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the wages of sin is death. Sin is devastating to the soul and to the life. But that's not all the scripture says, right? Like look at that second half. Like, but... But the free gift of God is eternal life. Like sin is devastating, but God is merciful. Not only is he gracious, but God is merciful and he's loving. And that's the third truth that we see tonight is that God is loving and he's merciful. He's gracious and sin is devastating, but God is loving and merciful. So I, I defined what gracious is, right? Like I defined what grace is to you. Let me define what mercy is. If grace is the giving of a gift that you, you do not deserve, mercy is the withholding of, of something that you do deserve, right? 
if we, deserve, uh, if we deserve a devastated life because of our sin, it is God's mercy to withhold it from us and not give us that devastation. It is God's mercy to withhold the punishment that we deserve. So grace is the giving of a great gift we don't deserve. And mercy is the holding back of something we do deserve. And we see that God is filled not only with that type of mercy, but he's filled with love as well. Look back at the text here. Luke 15, start in verse 17. But when he came to himself, this is talking about the prodigal son, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. So the son is devastated in his sin. He's at the end of his rope. It literally says there in verse 17 that he's perishing. He's dying. And he feels he has nowhere to turn. But then he comes to his senses. You see it there at the beginning of 17 as well, right? He comes to his senses. He, when he came to himself, he said. And what does he realize? He realizes his father is known to be kind and loving and merciful. That's what he knows of his father. His father is known for those things. And he's one who would certainly welcome him in if he was offered to be treated not as a son, but as a worker. So like back to the idea of what if you had said that to your parents, right? What if you had told them that you wish they were dead and by God's grace, they gave you their inheritance money early. You took all that your parents have worked for the, for the entirety of their lives, their social security, their 401k, you took your share of that. You squandered it with prostitutes and gambling and alcohol and whatever else you might spend it on. And then you lost it all. And then you come back and you have the audacity knowing that your parents are loving and kind and merciful you have the audacity to ask them something right it's sort of the idea that he has but instead of just asking to come live with them again right instead of asking to be a son to receive an inheritance he thinks i'm just going to be a servant like, I know my father is so loving and merciful and kind. Like, I can just be a servant in his house and I will have what I need. It'd be like if you came up to your parents after doing all of that and you're like, listen, I don't want anything as like being your son. I don't need a bedroom. I don't, I don't need you to treat me like your son anymore. But I was wondering, like, can I mow the lawn? And can I like just dust things and clean things? Like, can I be your butler? Like, can I serve the household? Because I know, I know who you are and I, and I need to be that because I know that I'm perishing without that. Like that's the concept of what he's asking when he wants to be a servant in his parents' house. And, and so as such, as he realizes this, he begins rehearsing what he's going to say, right? And namely, he says that he sinned and that he's not worthy to be a son. And that, that right there, that statement, I've sinned and I'm not worthy to be a son. That makes all the difference. That right there is the difference 
between the Pharisees and the tax collectors. That is the difference between the oldest son and the prodigal son. And that right there is why Jesus welcomes the tax collectors and the sinners because they are repentant, because they are humble, and they understand that they do not deserve the place that they've been given. And that's the reason Jesus welcomes them in because God is loving and he is merciful. And we know this based on the response of the father, right? This is just a setup. Let's look back at the response of the father here. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. So what I want to do is I want to take just that verse right there. And I want to show you three ways, three ways in which we know the father to be loving and to be merciful. And the first one is this. It says, the father felt compassion. The father felt compassion. The word here, compassion, like this is a good translation. And this specific word is used nine other times in scripture. And every single time that this specific word is used, it is in regards to how Jesus felt about those he was healing and those he was teaching and those he was comforting. Every single time. These aren't on the screen. I'm just going to say them to you. Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Luke 7, 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep for I am with you. Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began teaching them many things. So he healed, he comforted, and he taught because he had compassion. And that exact same description is given to the father right now. Like the father could have been haughty. He could have been angry. He could have been arrogant. He could have said, it's about time you came back. It's about time you come. Well, 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 look who showed up. But he didn't. And in fact, one thing that I was sort of learning as I was reading through this and studying this week, the father had the right, the legal right to have the son executed. This one is on the screen. This is Deuteronomy 21. This is from the law of God. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the elders the city at the gate, the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. It was within the law of God to take a rebellious son and stone him. This law would have been ingrained in every single Jew that Jesus is teaching at this time, right? Because this is part of their sacred law. This is literally the essence of their culture. They knew this law. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to the Pharisees, like as he's telling the story, what he's trying to communicate is that when it comes to sinners who are repentant and they come back to God the Father, when they're humble and repentant, that instead of executing them, he is filled with compassion and he shows mercy because of it. Because the Father 
having compassion and running towards the son is the literal definition of mercy, right? Instead of giving him the punishment he deserved, he withheld it and instead gave him the grace and gift of love and compassion. So that's the first way that we can see in here that proves that the father um, is loving and merciful. Here's the second one. Here's the second thing we see. The father ran. I know this sounds weird, right? The father ran. He felt compassion, but he ran. And, and why is this important? Well, it's important because in Jesus's time, it was considered undignified and shameful for a father or an elder to run. You see what I'm getting at? Like this repentant sinner comes back to the father and the father who is filled with compassion, what does he do? He runs in an undignified manner. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it doesn't explicitly say it here in the text, but I believe this is a really cool connection. That in this parable, the father runs to his son in what would have been a humiliating thing, a humiliating fashion, the same way that Jesus came and showed us his compassion by being humiliated on the cross. Humiliated, naked, and hanging on the cross. Like, it's, it's like a tip of the hat just towards the fact that the way the Father approaches sinners who are repentant is being willing to be humiliated. Just a tip of the hat that he's gonna send his son to be humiliated for repentant sinners. Like, I think that's really cool. And it just shows that the Father didn't care about what other people thought. He didn't care about self-righteousness. He cared about showing compassion and mercy to his son. And here's the last thing. The last thing that I think is cool to note about this is that not only did the father run, but the father embraced. Like the father embraced. And why is this cool? Well, it's because of the word embraced here. Like, so Greek and English don't always translate perfectly, right? So we have to try to make sure we do everything we can to communicate it as best as we can. And the, and the word embraced here, it's a really great choice. But the word here also, you need to note that there's a strong emotional connection that comes with this specific word. Like the word used for embrace here, it literally means to throw yourself upon somebody. Like to throw upon, to wrap yourself around their neck is what it actually means. And so this Greek word means wrap oneself around the neck. And so we say embrace, right? But the connection here should be much more emotional. Like if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph, right, gets uh, imprisoned and sold to the slave trades by his brother and he ends up, his brothers, and then he ends up in Egypt and then all this stuff goes down, but eventually Joseph is reunited with his father at the end of Genesis. In Genesis 45, and it says, when Joseph, after many years, finally saw his father, what does it say he did? It says he fell upon him. It's the exact same word. Fell upon him and wept. This isn't just like a, a gentle like hug. Right? This isn't even just like a tight hug, right? This is an, an emotive, all-engaging, love and compassion hug that happens. And this is what Jesus is using to describe how the Father welcomes sinners. These are the words that are being chosen to describe our status as sinners who are repentant and running to the Father. Like Jesus isn't, he's not just defending a theological choice. Jesus isn't giving a theological essay on why it's okay to accept sinners. He's revealing the very heart of God. He's revealing the very heart of God to save those who are repentant because that's, that's what he's doing. He's saving them. 
That's what this means. He's saving them. And that's our fifth point or fourth point for the night is that repentance brings life. If we're learning these truths, the, the fourth one is repentance brings life. And we see that. It says it in verse 24 there. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And it says they began to celebrate. So in the context of the story, the father is saying that the son who he thought was dead or was dead to him has now been found to be living. But in context of what Jesus is communicating and the truth of the gospel, we know that this is saying that those who are repentant have life. If you are a repentant sinner and you have come to the Father for mercy, you were once dead, but you are now alive, right? Think back to, to Romans 6.23, the, the verse I had on the screen at the very beginning, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Repentant sinners once were dead and are now made alive in Christ. The prodigal son deserved death, but the free gift of God, the father, was a welcoming that brought him into eternal life. And this should sound familiar. Like the last two weeks, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about entering God's kingdom, and we've been talking about feasting at God's table. Right? Those are the two parables we've covered so far, and they've been about those who get to be with God at the end of days, those who get salvation. And what does it relate it to? A house and a feast. And what do we see here in this parable as well that wants the, the sinner is welcome in? What do they do? They kill the fatted calf. They have a feast. Once again, we're back to this idea of celebration and feast at those who get to partake in the supper of the lamb, those who get to have life that were once dead. Repentance brings life. Like the last two messages have been like really gut punching and this one should just feel so good because it's not just about what we have to do, it's about what God is and, and who he is. So let's, let's just recap before we get to the last point and we wrap up here tonight. Let's recap what we've learned. We've learned that God is gracious. We've learned that sin is devastating. We've learned that God is both loving and merciful. We've learned that repentance brings life. And these are all things that we've learned about how God views us. And this last one, this last one is like just a, a little warning at the end. And if I hadn't just spent the last two weeks talking about self-righteousness to you, probably could spend more time on this. But we're gonna use this as just the gentle reminder, the subtle reminder of what it's like to be the other person, of what it's like to not be the repentant sinner. And the reminder is this, self-righteousness is tempting. That's our last truth for the night, self-righteousness it's tempting. Verse 25, this is the older son, right? The older son was in the field and he came and drew near the house and he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he doesn't call him his brother, right? But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost 
And what? He's found. I think one of the super interesting parts of this story is that there's no ending. Sort of like Jonah. If you've read through Jonah, there's really no ending to, to how it is. It's just like Jonah complains, God says something, and that's it. You don't know how Jonah responds. And the same thing here. You have no idea how the older son responds to that truth. You have no idea if even the, the son that came back continues on in his repentance. We don't know how the brothers treated each other from, from then on. And what does that show us? It shows us that those aspects aren't important, right? But what is important is the brother's actions. The older brother's actions. The point of the older brother being in the story at all is not to show his response to the father's words, but rather to show what his heart was in the first place. And that's a self-righteous, entitled heart. Like, look at what he says and how he feels. Father, I've served you many years. I've done everything good and I've done nothing wrong. And yet you've never treated me the way you're treating my younger brother. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus, how dare you welcome sinners and tax collectors? We're the ones who are righteous. We're holy. We're the priesthood. We're the ones who commit everything to you. And we pray in the streets in front of everybody. Can't you see how holy and righteous we are? Yet you've not invited us to dinner. You've not sat down with us. You've not taught us the way that you teach them. You don't call us friend. Jesus is making the point. Self-righteousness is what won't get you there. We've talked about it the last several weeks, but I want to remind you tonight, it's tempting. It's tempting to come to church and, and be a Christian and to live the life, especially if you've been raised in it. It's very tempting to rest on the good things you've done. So that's what we learn from the prodigal son. Just five truths, right? God is gracious and is devastating. God's loving and merciful. Repentance brings life. And just a reminder, self-righteousness is pretty tempting at times. So I pray this has been um, fruitful for you. I'm gonna pray for us now and just pray that the Lord would instill these truths into you for the next week. Father, thank you so much for all that you've taught us in this. Thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that one of these truths we would just reflect on and meditate on this week. Father, that you would remind us that it's not just about saying the right words. It's not just about doing the right things. It's about knowing a father that does those things. A father that is gracious and merciful and loving. Lord, I pray that you would decrease our view of self and you would increase our view of you in a way that makes us glad to be the one who comes to you and asks for mercy, Lord because we get to know you, we get to be with you, we get to be in the feast with you. Lord, give us joy and delight. And when we worship together on Thursday nights, let that joy show through our, our lips, Lord, as we sing praise to you for all that you've done, for you are good and kind and merciful and compassionate. Father, I pray you would grow us in our eagerness to express that, but not just in worship through song, but worship in life, Lord. May our whole life be an act of worship to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.